0: Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911.
1: Good morning,
2: Jesus 911. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Ruben Aubin, Jesse Romero, two man car. 10 8 for you this morning. Jesse, good morning.
1: Reporting for duty, sir. Ruben, we got some good stuff this morning. The first yeah. two things that we're going to talk about are, you <laughs> know, sometimes a lot of Catholics, Ruben, they credit or fallen away Catholics or ex Catholics, they'll they'll say I left the Catholic Church because of this, that, and the other. But you know, there's so many things at the Catholic Church, some great contributions that people don't know about, and that's what we're going to talk about the first two segments. Yep.
2: Yeah. So uh, let's let's get into this. This is uh, like <laughs> did. The article is. Did you know that a Catholic priest is credited with inventing the bulletproof vest? So, if mm. you know that's the case, Jesse. Then, uh, then we know some friends of ours that have been saved by by his invention. So, uh,
1: yeah, no, the, the the facts are there. I mean, and again, it just it just goes to show you, Ruben, all the the, the incredible things that the Catholic Church. I mean, they're 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 like endless. Yeah. The contributions that the Catholic Church has made to Western civilization—I mean, who would have ever thought? When you put on your Kevlar vest and I put on my Kevlar vest, who would have ever thought, Ruben, mm-hmm. that this was was inspired? This technology, this engineering was was inspired by a Catholic priest. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah hey, Ruben, yeah. going into the first segment, I got a doctor calling me up. Right oh, here. go ahead. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: Go ahead. Okay. So there's a Father Casimir Zeglin. He would, he would routinely don the vest on and take uh, shots during demonstrations. So he would actually wear the vest to show, and have somebody shoot him to show that it stopped bullets. Now, I I don't know about you, but I I wouldn't even do that with the technology we have today, with the vest we have today. But, uh, and he did it, and they they hadn't really, um, you know, the vest that they had at at that point were were just coming out. I mean, the they were still testing it. So he would actually have enough confidence to put it on and, and have people shoot him. So um, but it's a bulletproof vest is is a staple of law enforcement, you know. Sometimes we might complain because it's so hot, it's a hundred degrees outside, and we gotta wear this vest, and you're just sweating underneath your uh, your vest, and you know, your under t shirt is soaking wet. But um, you know what? Um I wouldn't go out without it and um and and i i knew i had friends that that did in in the early days and uh you know it, one of them um who didn't like to wear his vest a good friend of mine and his partner said you're not you're not going i'm not working with you unless you you put your vest on and that night the um, they took rounds from a sh- they, were, was, they were in a shooting and uh the the vest saved his life <clears throat> and it was uh from a uh like an ak-47 type round and uh, it it wouldn't have saved him for the fact that it was it it's hit off the top of the roof and was tumbling so it, it slowed the velocity down but it still hit the the trauma plate sideways and indented it into his you know his chest knocked him down hurt him his, his chest was completely uh bruised and but uh, it saved his life so Thank you, Father Casimir Zeglin, for that. Um, So while the modern vest bear little resemblance to the earliest prototypes, their function remains the same to save lives. And um, what many people don't realize, however, is that the lives that have been saved can can be credited, at least in part, to this Catholic priest. And uh, it was the dawn of the 20th century. Guns were everywhere. The mechanization of the Industrial Revolution made firearms more accessible than ever in and many adults carried them regularly. And as one might expect, increased access to guns meant a similar increase in gun violence. Uh, While not the Wild West, there were quite a few attempted assassinations of public figures. In in fact, in Chicago, the uh, mayor, Carter Henry Harrison, was shot and killed in his own home. So uh, this sent uh, Chicago's political climate into an uproar and left many citizens unsettled. It was then that an unlikely hero emerged in the form of a Catholic priest, Father Casimir Zeglin of Saint Stanislaus Roman Catholic Church had already been developing an article of clothing that could stop high-velocity projectiles in their tracks. With the assassination of Harrison, however, he began to devote himself to crafting body armor. Uh, Jess, Jess you want to take it from there?
1: Uh, go ahead, Ruben. Yeah. I'm just uh, yeah. Okay. I'm just following along here.
2: Got it. So, um, so according to the cult of Mac, Father Zeglin began experimenting with textiles. The early years were slow going with little results found in, in his cloth made from moss hair and steel shavings. It wasn't until he discovered a medical report from 19, or 1887 that true progress was made. The coroner had found that a silk handkerchief slowed the movement of a bullet through a man's pocket.
1: Wow. Let me pick it up from there. Yeah. <clears throat> Excited by the possibilities, Father Seglin switched his focus towards silk when he found his success. It took years of testing, but by 1897, he had perfected his bulletproof vest and applied for a patent. At this point, the vest was made of layers of linen, wool, and silk. It would do for the low-caliber pistols of the era. But the design needed to add a steel plate to protect against high-caliber rifles. The design was refined, was further refined, and I don't know what's happening here with our uh, technology. Yeah, I something's can, happened here. Can we'll hear. Just, we'll, we can Yeah, hear. we'll just yeah we'll just work work through it. The design was further refined when the father Zeglin teamed with Jan Zepanik, also called the Polish uh, Edison. Yeah, Zepanik helped take the vest to new heights, even going so far as to create an automated production line to manufacture them. The pair eventually parted ways, but Father Zeglin took his new newfound knowledge back to the states to seek investors. Uh and so it says here next article dangerous demonstrations check this out NPR featured a 1902 article from the Brooklyn Eagle which reports on the vest in a demonstration by Father Zeglin in Montauk, New York. There the vest was tested against several firearms of varying caliber, all of which were stopped. It's a good thing too because Father Zeglin was reportedly wearing the vest during the demonstration. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm sure he was in a state of grace when he was doing this. The <laughs> yeah. the bro- the brook yeah the Brooklyn Eagle described the vest this way: a fabric produced there, which is one eighth of an inch in thickness, four ply, presents this perfection of weave, and all efforts to penetrate it with bullets have proved futile. The Reverend Fa- uh, Mister Zeglin himself submitted to a test in Chicago. He put on a vest in the material, and an expert revolver shot fired at the vest at eight pl- at eight paces. And not one of the bullets at all disturbed Mr. Zeglin or Father Zeglin. Mm. That's right. Father Zeglin routinely put his money where his mouth was and took the shots. The Catholic priest donned the protective vest for such demonstrations many times during his development. There are no words no record. how many times Father Zeglin was shot in these years, but he did equate the pain to being poked with a cane.
2: Mm. Well the technology on the guns have also improved too so um i, I was telling them <laughs> before, when you got off uh, i was telling I was telling the uh, audience that i i wouldn't i would do that with the technology we have with the vest today you know let alone uh, the you know just these is the uh
1: experimenting yeah because he was experimenting yeah. these are like test runs yeah
2: exactly <laughs> i don't know uh, why don't put him on a put him on a dummy you know and 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 take shots that way. but
1: uh, There you go. Yeah. That's the way you do it. Well, that's the way they do it right now with yeah. Smith & Wesson, Glock, and all these other companies. Mm-hmm. That, yeah.
2: Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it, the, the vest has become very popular. Although the price tag drastically limited its prominence. The price of silk was quite high, and the vest cost the equivalent of many thousands of dollars by today's standards. Still, those who could afford them found a peace of mind as reports began to rise of the effectiveness of Father Ziggins' silk. And quite possibly the most prominent instance of the silk success was when it saved King Alfonso the thirteenth of Spain. He's the monarch that used the material of the silk vest to cover his royal carriage. And when a homemade grenade was chucked at his vehicle, not a single bit of shrapnel made it through. Wow. So, wow. so while modern vests are made of a different material, they use Kevlar now, they still utilize the thread weaving techniques developed by by Father Kazimir Zeglin. The, the Polish Catholic priest's contribution are kept alive each time a bullet is stopped by a vest it is estimated that since the 1960s more than 3000 lives of police officers have been protected from this technology in the united states alone and uh, and and i and i i mentioned uh, at the start of the this uh, the article i you know uh, uh, both a friend of ours frank Dominguez, you know a good friend of mine now oh, yeah. i still i, I still yeah. see him often you know and his life was saved because of a vest and uh i said frank man you better start going to church because i was trying to tell you something you know uh that that round uh, that was tumbling you know Uh, it was uh you know a guy that came out of the stolen car with a an ak-47 and uh started blasting at at everybody and 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 uh and frank didn't want to wear his vest that night he didn't want to wear his vest ever because he was just uncomfortable you know but uh you know this you get a little uh you get a look. But at he us. did
1: that night. He, he did that night. Well,
2: yeah. His partner Timmy Phillips said, "Hey, I'm not going to go 10-8 with you if uh, you're not wearing your vest." And thank God for Timmy because uh, <laughs> Frank, all right, you put it on. And and that night, you know, it came in handy. Wow. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the trauma plate had been uh, pushed in, and uh, <sighs> the round the round the projectile was was embedded sideways into his, you know, his trauma plate. Now. Yeah, they are uncomfortable. And having used um, entry vests to to do to do you know my search warrants, we had a, even
1: more uncomfortable. Yeah, we had a, a
2: a bigger vest, and the old ones had these a big you know big heavy trauma plates on them because you know they're they're trying to stop heavier caliber you know rounds, like perhaps a rifle or something. So, um, praise God for Father.
1: Uh, Amen, Reuben. I'll tell you th- this: this priest. Uh, it goes to show you how ordained, how God ordained uh, law enforcement is. Mm. You got a Catholic priest that invented the first vest. Saint Michael is the patron saint of policemen. Uh, and God says in Matthew five eight, blessed are the peacemakers; they shall be called the children of God. Yep. Law enforcement is a divinely, uh, is a, uh, it, It's a divine vocation.
2: Yep. Coming up next, we're going to talk about beer.
0: now back to Jesus 911 if this call is not an emergency dial 888-526-2151
2: we're back to Mancar 108 for Jesus and uh, next subject is uh something that uh that I'm not gonna pretty lie interesting to. I'm not going to lie to you Jesse I like my I like my beer but don't get inebriated, but uh I I, I love the taste and uh, you know um, I didn't know that the monks had perfected this beer. So,
1: let's yeah, talk. that let's, yeah, that's it. what's interesting. So, we're not saying that Catholics invented beer. We're not saying that, but we are saying, and and the evidence suggests that monks perfected the beer. So, yeah. let's. Uh, and, and one of the things, Ruben, you'll you'll find in the all over the old and New Testament, the promise of God, God is always talking about heaven, and uh, mm-hmm. in the afterlife. It'll be a place, it'll say, where there'll be festive drink and festive this and festive that. So one of the things that we do know that alcohol is not intrinsically evil.
2: Correct, yeah.
1: Because it's mentioned, Jesus Christ turned water into wine. Our Lord Jesus Christ was accused. Uh, You know, this man is a glutton and, and, and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He was called a drunkard because apparently he was seen as so many Jewish parties, probably drinking wine. <clears throat> so alcohol is not intrinsically evil. Now, I will say that narcotics is because the word for narcotics is pharmakeia in the Old Testament and New Testament. And that's always denounced as something that's that's there. only there's only one reason for pharmakeia, and that's to alter the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's never that's never allowed. So let's see what it says here. Monks did not invent the be did not invent the beer. They just made it much, much better. In the history of beer making, monks have a a special place in heaven. They found the perfect triangulation of spirituality, nutrition, and self-sufficiency to create a product that many still think of as divine. During a recent trip, the the author writes, Steve Moretti, my wife and I visited the Weltenberg Abbey, the oldest monastic brewery in the world. They proudly stamped 1050 the year of their founding on all their bottles, cans, and T-shirts. The oldest monastic brewery claim is, is disputed by another Bavarian monastery, Y. hens Stephen Abbey, who say they got going 10 years earlier in 1040. <laughs> what can be argued is that the monks revolutionized beer-making and to this day beer's monastic breweries produce produce are still among the finest in the world. I can attest to the heavenly creamy texture of the Welton Burger Dunkel we sampled. It was nutty brown and earthy yet still refreshing. Sipping from a tall stein in their beer garden overlooking the Danube, the, Dan- the Danube River, I wondered what drove monks to become such brewmasters. with a little research. I discovered some of the history behind this lasting gift to the world. By the way, if you travel to Northern Europe, you may want to spend a few hours exploring a monastic brewery. You get to absorb history and beer at the same time. And maybe, you know, stay for lunch all in one stop. Ruben.
2: Yeah. So, uh, it's like a match made in heaven. Um, Let's. So the, uh, the author says, let's travel back about 600 A.D. You're a monk devoted to a life of monastic living, hidden away from the hustle and bustle of medieval temptations. You and your companions follow the rules of St. Benedict. One of them states that to become a true monk, you must live by the work of your own hands. You must also donate to the poor through the fruits of your labor and provide traveling pilgrims with food and drink. Before long, you realize that brewing beer will provide a means to live by St. Benedict's Rules, you consider this while you and your fellow monks down four liters of beer each day for nutrition, of course, as a supplement during long periods of fasting. Monks believe you must donate to the poor through the fruits of your labors and provide traveling pilgrims with food and drink. So in the Middle Ages, beer was consumed widely across Europe. Some things never change. And back then, beer was safer to drink than water stored in containers, but often not much better. Beer was made by women with... Whatever leftover food could be found in the house it often turned rancid. So monastic monks saw great possibilities in a product that they could make themselves. They would help sustain them, could be sold to travelers, and could also offer to those most in need of nourishment. But first, they would have to take brewing to a higher level than was known in the Middle Ages with a fervor even St. Benedict would bless. They began to experiment with beer making, keeping detailed journals of what they did and did not work, what did and did not work. And uh, one thing I heard constantly in Germany and Austria was that beer is liquef- liquid bread. Monks knew this instinctively, even if they didn't have precise knowledge of its many health benefits. Grain forms the backbone of the beer, making it a source of safe stored calories, safe um, and stored calories, about 150 per, per pint. A slice of bread was usually less than half of that. So monks also didn't know that beer, especially the dark brews were f- were favored, were high in antioxidants that reduces cellular damage associated with aging beer also provides soluble fiber reduces cholesterol and contains significant amounts of magnesium selenium selenium potassium phosphorus biotin and a full range of b vitamins given the limited variety of fresh foods at this point in history beer provided a healthy year uh, a year found supplement i i never knew all that I, and I'm not yeah, really, me you know, I'm not really a fan of the dark beers, but uh, yeah, that's...
1: <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah. Ruben, it's uh, It's interesting uh, that, I mean, he's talking in this article, things that I never knew about. There, there's some uh, vitamins and some mm-hmm. medical benefits. It does say in the Bible, not about beer, obviously, but about wine. Mm-hmm. In First Timothy 5.23, it does say, drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach. So apparently, uh, even St. Paul, back in the day, they understood that wine had some medical properties to it. But the article goes on to say, blessed innovations in beer making. Step by step, monks improved the art of beer brewing. They added wild hops to their mash to help balance the sweet flavors of the malt and more importantly, to better preserve the beer. The hops also gave their brews a a thirst quenching bitterness. Beer drinkers the world over can vouch for this. Give me anything on a really hot day as long as it's a cold beer. Hmm. Monks also introduced a fastidious level of sanitary practices to their beer making that was uncommon in the 11th century. They developed r- detailed regulations for everything from brewing to labeling and storage. They also made other brewing innovations. Monks discovered they could run water through mash to get beer with various alcohol levels. Mm-hmm. They sold the highest concentration, 5% alcohol, no travelers. They drank the second run, 2.5% alcohol themselves. And finally, they squeezed a third run through the mash, produced beer for the poor and destitute, with less than 1% alcohol concentration still healthy and beneficial but not as much fun at breakfast <laughs> monks are also credited with coming up with the idea of lo- of lagering or cold store or cold storing beer for better flavor which in turn led to pale <clears throat> clean tasting pilsners and a thousand tv commercials <laughs> fast forward almost 600 years and monks are still making beer with some of their brews regarded as the best in the world they also find talking about about the beer they make can uh they make can lead to deeper conversations of a spiritual nature with visitors to the monastery uh so it's saying here that the, that the monks and beer are a match made in heaven
2: yeah and you know if that that wasn't enough the, the catholic church has um, patron saints five patron saints of beer wow um yeah so, uh, St. Arnulf of Metz, he's quoted as saying, from man's sweat and God's love, beer came into the world. Hmm. Um, the blessed brew is one of the life's great enjoyments and a incontrovertible sign of God's love for us. And, you know, when I'm barbecuing, I love to have a, a cold beer. You know, uh, there's certain things that it, that it goes really well with, uh, yeah. you know, maybe going out and having, you know, Mexican food at the restaurant, I'll, you know, have a beer or having sushi, have a Japanese beer, but this. You know, again, we're not we're not talking about getting uh, you know inebriated and,
1: and yeah, Ruben. The, the key word for us as Catholics is called temperance, yep. temperance or moderation. Either you know means the same thing. It means once again, uh, just again, Jesus Christ doesn't. Ne- well, I can tell you that alcohol is not intrinsically evil. Right. And here's here's the simplest answer I can give you, is because our Lord Jesus Christ turned water into wine, Jesus would have not done something evil because he's God and he's sinless. Mm-hmm. If there was something intrinsically evil about that, I mean, he wouldn't have turned water into heroin or, yeah. or water into the drug of that day that the witches and the sorcerers were using. So uh, th- the, the point is uh, for, for Catholics, alcohol is licit so long as it's taken in moderation. Right. And once again, there's one promise after another that in heaven, in the next life, Reuben, there's going to be... I mean, it says it in Isaiah 25, 6. God will provide feasts of rich foods and choice wines. Isaiah 55, 1. Everyone who thirsts comes to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Drink your wine with merry heart. Uh, Genesis 27, 25. Jacob brought his father Isaac wine and he drank. He drank. The list goes on and on. In other words, uh, the it's the abuse of drugs and alcohol that lowers your willpower, lowers your inhibitions, and impairs your faculties. Right,
2: Jess? What that, would you say? Yeah. What would you say to to our Protestant friends that that I, you've probably heard this that well, there wasn't it wasn't alcohol in the wine. It wasn't. It was. Uh, you know. Non-alcoholic wine, and um, I don't know where they get that from. Where,
1: yeah, that's they made it up out of whole cloth. Because <laughs> it's not a not yeah. Because Bible. when you you look at a Bible dictionary, and the word wine is the, is is the Greek word mostos, and you look up what it what mostos means in a Greek, even in a Protestant Greek dictionary, it'll say it is fermented wine. Mostos is fermented wine that causes inebriation. So even their own Protestant Greek lexicons. Betray what they say it was absolute wine that Jesus Christ uh, made water water into wine that causes Drunkenness if it's drank in uh, you know in, in, in large us. quantities. Yeah. Yeah
2: uh, so, so just uh, real quick in the time we have left I'm just gonna say that the, these are the Saints that uh, that are mentioned about, about being the patron Saints of beer um, St. Arnulf of Metz uh, St. Gambrinus Saint Augustine, Saint Gabernus is not. A, it's it might be a legend. Um, there's really no. Uh, it's not based on. It might be a myth. So, um, but then there's Saint Augustine, uh, Saint Luke of the Evangelist, and Saint Wenceslaus And so, mm. the ones that you heard of, like like, well, Saint Arnulf of Metz. Um, he's probably the most famous brewing patrons, and he was a bishop and advisor to King uh, Thubert the Second of Austria after his death. Um. In uh, Rearmont Abbey, parishioners from his former diocese of Metz, have, who already venerated him as a saint, went to recover his body. The journey was during a particular hot part of the year, and the travelers were ready to faint of thirst. One of the prisoners, by the name of Duke Noto, cried out, quote, By his powerful intercession, the blessed Arnold will bring us what we lack. End quote. Miraculously, their supply of beer was replenished and lasted until they returned home. <laughs> Uh, saint Augustine, the Doctor of Grace, is the patron saint of many things, not the least of which is those who practice the art of brewing. What's unclear how he was, he achieved this distinction, and it's likely his profound conversion, which he was transformed from a wild, drunken, and dissipated soul into a whole, holy, and temperate bishop. So you got to have some, you got to have a sense of humor. Uh, That's right, Catholic, right? Yeah.
1: Hey, Ruben, I'm ten seven. I'm uh, out to the doctor. I'll t- I'll see okay. you on Thursday. All right, you got it.
2: We'll be right back coming up. What is Christendom? You know, let's talk about what's going on in the Middle East.
0: Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526 2151.
2: We are back, Jesus 911. Uh, we, I'm a, I'm a king car now. Jesse had a, a doctor's appointment, so he won't be joining us for the second half of the show. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, Chris Lum and what is that? Uh, now, this is, kind of, this is what's kind of been going on behind the scenes. Um, this was published on two couple days ago, September seventeenth. So, um, Chris Lum confirmed, led by Pope Francis, leaders of the world's religious. Religions formally adopt human fraternity document at the 7th Congress. Um, you know, now this, this, the article I'm, I'm looking at, it's not a, uh, not a Catholic uh, source, but there are, they're pulled, they pull information from other, um, you know, other sources, you know, the other things that you've, you've heard of, like Brebart and other, other, um, other sites as well. So it just to tell you, I'm just, you know, I'm, I don't know if this is a fact, uh, in, in fact, what the church is is, um, is doing in, t- in terms of what their intentions are, but it's it's good that you should know about this. It's with the adoption this week by the Seventh World Religious Congress of the Human Fraternity Document created by Pope Francis and Mohammed bin Zayed, Chrislam, which is a, the combination of Chris, Christian and Islam, is now the official one world religion. Its official Christian has now been codified and ratified with the approval of the 7th Congress of Leaders of the World and Traditional Religions of the Human Fraternity Document created by Pope Francis of the Vatican and financed and promoted by Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates. Question. Guess who they forgot to invite to the festivities? The answer, Jesus Christ. His name appears nowhere and is never mentioned. So I wonder who the honored guest is then. Hmm. May uh, they, they quote First uh, Thessalonians five three for when they shall say peace and safety they sudden then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with the child as they shall not escape. Whether or not the pope um, retires as are, are, are some are suggesting, or whether or not he will be the biblical Antichrist, um, I'm not. I'm not saying that. This is what the article says. It, at this point, rather immaterial because, as you know now put in place and set in motion the functional political religious and financial framework on which the one world religion of Christlam will operate pope francis could die tomorrow but what he has created will live on into the time of of jacob's trouble of course all this prophetic fulfillment could not have taken place without his very generous patron and background muhammad bin zaid is he the prince of the covenant time will tell but man oh man this is a this is a giant, pun intended, step forward. We warned you for for the past, you know, thirteen years, Lum was coming, and we know uh, we've we've we know who the the Pope has been entertaining at um, at the Vatican. You know, like Klaus Schwab and some of these globalists. You know, he's he's had Nancy Pelosi there a few times, and and uh, President Biden, and um, you know, he has some really. Uh, anti-Catholic uh, people that he's entertaining there. And you've got to you scratch your head and say, what's going on? Uh, and now he's, he's got uh, this um, th- this church that's being built out there in uh, the United Arab Emirates in Dubai and um, the Abrahamic um, house. And it's, it's the, the three uh, world religions, you know, that are coming together, the Jews, the, the Christians, and the Muslims. And uh, apparently they're going to be able to pray together. Now, we know our faith doesn't allow us to pray with, you know, non-Catholics. Um, so uh, what, what he's doing here is, is you know, you've got to ask yourself, you know, why? Uh, from the Emirates News, this is from right from the Arab Emirates News, the world religious leader today adopted the human fraternity document signed by his eminence the Grand Ayman of Al-Azhar and Chairman of the Muslim Council of Elders, Dr. Ahmed El-Tayyib, and His Holiness Pope Francis of the Catholic Church in Abu Dhabi in 2019. This came during the 7th Congress of Leaders of World and Traditional Religions, which concluded on Thursday. These are some of the highlights from the 7th World Congress of Religions. So these are the bullet points. We note that pluralism in terms of differences in skin, color, gender, race, language, and culture are expressions of the wisdom of God in creation. Religious diversity is permitted by God, and therefore any coercion to a particular religion and religious doctrine is unacceptable. So you see that? They're, they're, uh, that's why you never hear about in this you know, pontificate about missionary work you know converting people he even the pope has said something that uh, we don't do proselytization you know not to do it um and uh w- w- this is this is heresy here where, where it says that um that god you know uh, god permitted uh, diversity in, in in various religions well although he it's he, it's he permits it in the sense that it's his permissible will but it doesn't mean that that's what he will, you know. That's what he's condoning. You saw in the Old Testament, you know, all the, the different uh, nations that were warned against, uh, you know, Israel. You know, and uh, and they were they were put down. And so, this is uh, something. You again, you you scratch your head and say, "What the heck is going on here?" We recognize the important. This is the second point uh, the importance and value of, do, uh, of the document on human fraternity for world peace. And living together between the Holy See and Al-Azhar al-Sharif, adopted by the UN General Assembly in Resolution A-Res 75-200 of December 21, 2020, and the Makkah Declaration adopted in Mecca in 2019, which called for peace, dialogue, mutual understanding, and mutual respect among believers for the common good. The third point, we call upon religious leaders and prominent political figures from different parts of the world tirelessly to develop dialogue in the name of friendship, solidarity, and peaceful coexistence. The fourth point, we appeal to all people of faith and goodwill to unite in this difficult time and contribute to the ensuring security and harmony in our common home, planet Earth. Um, so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with those. Uh, we are supposed to um, try to make the, 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 uh, the world better and... Um, people of goodwill can come together to to promote that um but the fact that we're not gonna we're not gonna stand up for jesus and 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 his church is is kind of uh that's what uh, is the troubling about this you know we have the true faith and yet um we're coexisting with these other faiths and at, and putting them on a on the putting them on the, on the pet on a pedestal as if they are equal to Christ Church, and, and they are not. The closing statement of the Congress, which was attended by over 108 religious and world leaders, underscored the historical significance of the Human Fraternity document, stressing that it helps promote peace, dialogue, and mutual respect among people. The leaders of the world and traditional religions in the in the spiritual and social development of human civilization in the post pandemic period. The event saw the participation of uh, uh, just various people, like the president of Kazakhstan. And Doctor Ahmed El Taib and Pope Francis, the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, he you know gave his entire speech on interreligious dialogue. He never mentioned the name of Jesus, not one time. This is one of the many reasons why the uh, you know why the fundamentalists they attack Catholics, saying that uh, you know it's counterfeit Christianity, and of course that's not the case but when you when you see things like this, then they you know they give us it gives us um puts us on the defensive so you gotta know your faith and know that uh, our faith doesn't determine, doesn't isn't uh doesn't you can look at any what a priest says or a bishop says or a cardinal says and God forbid even the pope says if it's not consistent with what the church has always said then you know um then its uh it's 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 not Catholic, you know? So it does, It doesn't determine our faith doesn't, isn't de- um, determined by what some people might say that is, that is wrong. That is, they're speaking uh, in error. So you should see what the church teaches from the very beginning and um, what we have in our, you know, in our doctrines. And um, so, but you know, eight months ago in, in February, um, The opening of a new apostolic nunciature, an an embassy of the Vatican, the United Arab Emirates, is a testament to this fraternity and goodwill between Muslims and Christians, said Archbishop Edgar Pena Parra. So the Vatican set up an embassy in Abu Dhabi, and it solidifies its base of human fraternity and the one world religion of Christlam. Things are happening so fast and as Habakkuk accurately points out many are watching, but so very few people are paying attention that it's flying under the radar while being in full view at the same time. Quote, behold, this is what Habakkuk says, behold ye among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe though it be told to you. Habakkuk one five. So, um, you know the Vatican, a Roman Catholic Church, uh, and Islam, and even Rick Warren, the uh, the pastor from Southern California, and his and Pope Francis, uh, they were all there uh, as as well as Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the man nearly single-handedly worked to produce the environment that saw the birth of the Declaration of Human Fraternity, Chrislam, the One World Religion, and and the Abraham Accords. Um, then you you look back on in October, and the Pope, uh, the Pope Francis, at Vatican, on he had a, uh, a Hindu feast of Diwali. Uh, he warns against religious fundamentalism. Calls Catholics and Hindus to join hands in the light. Um, then you you look back on December of 2021, the Grand Ayman Al Azhar Ahmed El Tayeb plans major major Chrysleum update with Vatican. Ahead of the 2022 opening of the Abrahamic Family House, so all these things are going on, and uh, you know, th- this is this is why you you have to know your faith because y- you cannot follow you know you, you you just can't follow some of the the leaders that are are pushing these things because you can't say well look at he's uh, he's infallible so you know we must be correct he's only infallible when he's you know he's speaking to us on faith and morals from the chair peter we respect the office we pray for him and uh, pray for our bishops uh this is going on and um i just want to make you aware you know so okay coming up what are what's an ember day you know tomorrow uh, is an ember day so let's talk about it
0: to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151.
2: We're back Jesus 911. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Jesse had to go to a doctor appointment, so he's not here for the second half. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Ember Days and it's Ember Tide for Catholics and this is something that you won't hear in the—it's It's been uh, kind of put—gone put by, by the wayside in the uh, in the modern church. And, um, you know, uh, Pope Paul VI did away with the, these—the the observance of it. Uh, you can still do it. And if you call yourself a traditional Catholic, then, you know, you should be doing this. Have um, you never heard about Ember Day's— they're observed for most of the history of the church and prior to the late 20th century. If you haven't, don't feel bad. Like many traditional practices in the church laden with deep meaning, Ember days have been, uh, chucked down the Catholic memory hole, <laughs> but fear not. Um, this is why God created the internet so we can, uh, find the neat things about Catholicism that are worth knowing and sharing. And, uh, Oh, so what's an ember day? You know, four times a year, the church sets aside three days to focus on God through his marvelous creation. Um, the, these quarterly periods, they take place around the beginnings of the of the four natural seasons. Um, St. John Christendom says that uh, I like, he says, like some virgins dancing in a circle, succeed one another with the happiest harmony. And uh, he says, four, well, these four times are each kept on a successive Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, and are known as Ember Days, or Quatur Tempora in Latin. Um, the, the first of these four times comes in winter, because remember, the Catholic calendar starts in Advent. Uh, so winter, after the Feast of St. Lucy. The second comes in the spring, the week after Ash Wednesday. The third comes in summer, after Pentecost Sunday. Or some people know it as Wit Sunday. And the last comes in autumn after Holy Cross Day. Um, their dates can be remembered by this old mnemonic: San Crux, Lucia, Cineris, Carismata, Dia, Utsit in Angaria, Quarta, Sequence, Feria, which means Holy Cross, Lucy, Ash Wednesday, Pentecost are the, are the quarter holidays that follow. Um, for non Latinists, it might be easier to remember Lucy, Ashes, Dove for Pente- uh, Pentecost, and Cross, like the Holy Cross, the Feast of the Holy Cross, which was on the 14th. So these times are spent fasting, partially abstaining. It's voluntary um, since the new code of canon law, excuse me, in penance and with the intentions of thanking God for the gifts. He gives us uh, in nature in beseeching him in the discipline to use them in moderation. The fast known as uh, Jejunia, Quantur Temporum, or the fast of the four seasons, are rooted in the Old Testament practices of fasting four times a year. Zacharias 8.19 Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah, joy and gladness, and great solemnities only love ye truth and peace, and uh, Father Peter Carota, at the the blog traditional Catholic priest, he offers some some additional historical information on Ember Days, and he says that um, Ember Days are our true Catholic tradition, dating actually back to the apostles. Pope Leo the Great, uh, um, Pope Leo the Great claims it was instituted by the apostles. Pope Callistus from two seventeen to two twenty two. In the Liber Pontificalis has laws ordering all to observe the fast three times a year to counteract the hedonistic and pagan Roman rites praying for one, a good harvest in June, a good vintage vintage in September. <laughs> and there you go, the wine again. Um, a good seeding in December. By the time of Pope Galatius in 492 to 496, he already writes about there being four times a year, including spring he also permitted the conferring of priesthood and deaconship on the saturdays of ember week so that's that's another thing to think about that the, when you're praying during ember you know that uh, there's a lot of con- um ordinations are being do- conducted on the saturday of ember week um so you know we need more priests we need more religious so Let's um, let's get into the practice that we we pray these, especially in the church, gives us these days to do it. So let's take advantage of it. The practice was mostly celebrated around Rome from Pope Gelasius' time. They began to spread throughout the church, and Saint Augustine brought them to England and the Carolingians into Gaul and Germany. In the 11th century, Spain adopted them, and it wasn't until Pope Gregory the Seventh from 1073 to 1085 that these ember days were prescribed for the whole Catholic church as days of fast and abstinence. He places, he placed these four mini Lent's, consisting of three days, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And I've already given you the, the, the times um, after the, after St. Lucy's feast, December 13th, after Ash Wednesday, following Whit Sunday, also known as Pentecost. And after September 14th, the exaltation of the cross, the purpose of these many lents were to pray, to fast, to thank God for the gifts he gives us through nature. They follow the four seasons of the year with the beauty and the uniqueness of each particular season, and they're here for us to teach us to use with moderation what God gives us through nature and to also share these gifts with the poor. So what does this mean for you? Well, because of the changes in church law, not a whole lot, at least not officially. It doesn't mean, you know, you have to be a minimalist. You could you could do more, okay? Let's let's be those Catholics that, that want to stretch themselves and do more right? and not just do the bare minimum. Uh, the mandatory observation of ember days was excised from the church, practiced during the pontificate of Pope Paul VI, but as a voluntary practice, there's much that is salutary in observing the ember days of the church. Um, so... Th- um, so this is how you fast. It's you know, it's it's no different than what you, how you fast on Good Friday or Ash Wednesday. Two two small meatless meals and one full meal that can include meat. And uh, on Friday we may take two small meals and uh, one full meal, but observe the total abstinence even at the main meal. Hey guys, I think we could hear you um, in there. anyway hey uh guys Terry just uh mr engineer yeah we oh uh, they can't they got an open mic okay also worth noting Christmas Eve is traditionally a day of fast and total abstinence as well now I, I I'm I'm not a perfect Catholic I'm not a perfect traditional Catholic we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve because you know a lot of times there's two families to go to you have got you know, the in-laws to go to on Christmas day or, or vice versa. And that's the day we've always gotten together as a family. And so, um, (laughs) that's, uh, so I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. Um, but so you, you're, you're, it's one meal, two small snacks and, um, you know, let's, uh, just keep it, uh, hold on. Hey, Hey rich we we could hear you guys in there, so sorry about that. um also word noted Christmas Eve yeah Christmas Eve again is is traditionally a fast and total abstinence. I don't know how about you, but um typically America's we're indulgent here in America, and um I've never been real good at fasting, you know but but you know I'm working on it. I've noticed more and more people are advocating fasting as a countermeasure uh in today's troubling times, and that's good. Um, this is, so, you know, I'm, I'm making sure that I do these, these ember days. I do my fasting. Um, and I'm hoping that you guys will also too. And I'm going to tell you, um, even though, you know, I like my, I like my meals and I, you know, but I could stand to, to drop a few pounds. That's not my, my, my motivation is to, is to join my, my, uh, penance with prayer so that we can make a make a a headway into this society into into what's going on in the world what's going on in our church what's going on in government um you know and uh, asking our lord to um well we're thanking him first and foremost um for the things he gives us but also asking him for the things that we need and to um and to save our church and, and and save our family members and so that's just, this is something that we uh, we've got to do. Uh, the church gives us these opportunities to do these things, and let's take advantage of them. To, um, so to say nothing about making reparations for the um, increasingly hostile darkness of the world, steeped in its own sins. So fasting isn't going to get easier at some point in the future. When when I get holier, you know, in fact, I'm guessing the latter isn't going to happen until I master the former. I don't think there's ever been a time where fasting and penance are more needed than right now in this moment. So we can't rely on do- others to do it for us. we got a cowboy up and, um, put on our, our big boy pants, put on our mortification, we're put mortification where our mouth is. this. Uh, so what do you say? Who's going to be hungry with me? Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think this is a time that we have to, to step up and, and, and do more for, for our families and for the church, and 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 um, you know, be part of that remnant that, that God is calling us to. And um, it's it's uh, again, this is something that you don't have to do, but we we ask you to do it because this is what the church has always done. It goes all the way back to the apostles, and you know the the it's interesting that that, that uh, this the word tempura, it, that's where that's where that Japanese food tempura tempura came from because when the the missionaries went to to japan and they were looking for a food that they could eat during the this the season the uh and it was you know Quatur tempura was the time the fast of uh, of ember days this uh the food that came to be known as temp tempura you know it's it's that uh you know like that deep fried um you know fish or shrimp or vegetables it's quite tasty, as a matter of fact, and I I, uh, I tend to uh, really like the, uh, the shrimp tempura, as I just had uh, sushi this past Friday. Um, you know, again, during the during the year, uh, we don't eat meat on Fridays throughout the year, and although that's been done not done away with, so to speak, but it's it's not it's not mandatory, but penance is still mandatory. So you got to do something. So you may as well fast for meat on Fridays. Now we have uh, three days this week that we can do it as well. So let's step up. Let's uh, let's let's put on our big boy pants and and let's do it. And uh, you know, be an example to your family. And uh, you know, and pray, 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 and, and uh, don't give up. Okay. So you've been listening to Jesus 911, and uh, you know, hopefully you learned something I did when I looked at these things. So if you like what you hear, share it. And uh, stay tuned for Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Mishuda from the Midwest Command Center. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. I guess we'll be back tomorrow. God bless you. Keep the faith. Or 10, 10 7 eow